Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. Sorry for the gap in episode last week due to personal concerns, but we're back on track now, bringing you the latest news and oh my what a week it was. So there are actually two major stories that I was very conflicted on doing, and they're actually both written up already. The one I'm going to do today is very US centric, focusing on the vice presidential pick, spoilers, Kamala Harris. The other, addressing corruption around the world with regards to Lebanon, Belarus, and elsewhere, might be coming out in the middle of the following week or at the regular time next week. That's also a major episode, so be excited for it. In addition, there's a lot of ongoing political shifts happening all around us, and I'll be sure to try to keep everyone as updated as possible. It's truly going to be an even more exciting year moving forward. Back to the story of the day. If you haven't already heard, the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, the left-leaning party of the United States, Joe Biden, has selected Kamala Harris to be his vice presidential nominee. In the American system, the nominee for each party also selects a nominee for vice president in order to run at the same time. Of course, the vice presidential role is the most important executive role aside from the president, as they take over if the president is unable to serve and also executes various other duties around the White House. It's particularly important in this year, 2020, because of Biden's health concerns. He also has himself stated that he is a transitional candidate, meaning that the power center of the Democratic Party will most likely rest in the hands of the VP after Biden's presidency. This, combined with the fact that Biden is a very centrist candidate who has not done anything particularly aggressive in terms of policy proposals or in terms of campaigning, makes it so that Donald Trump is also highly incentivized to attack Harris instead of attacking Biden himself. In fact, this is already a narrative that the Republican Party is pressing. They press that Biden is not necessarily running for his own sake, but instead is a sort of Trojan horse for a more farther left candidate. When it was just Biden himself, this was a very difficult case to make and did not resonate with voters. However, with the inclusion of Kamala Harris, we can see if this changes in the future. Keeping all of this in mind, it's time to go into a deep dive on who the vice presidential nominee is and what this means for the future of the Democratic Party and America as a whole. Let's first look at Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. She, alongside Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, ran to be the Democratic nominee for president. Aside from that, she was also the former attorney general in California, is now serving as a senator from California, and also served as district attorney earlier on. All of this meant that there were high expectations for her going into the presidential race. Unfortunately for Harris, she had a poor showing, dropping out before even the first votes were cast in Iowa, the first state to vote for the Democratic presidential nominee, and at the time was polling worse than candidates such as Andrew Yang, both nationally and in her home state of California. Her campaign struggled significantly with messaging and in defining a clear set of policies for Harris to run on. One such example was Medicare for All. She supported the Democratic bill to push for universal health care when it was proposed in the Senate. However, she went on to distance herself from the policy later on in the race, proposing various alternatives along the way. While it's not necessarily a negative thing for politicians to reflect on new data and new political outcomes and change their mind on what they think on a particular policy, doing so in such a narrow time frame does create the perception of someone who doesn't actually care about their beliefs someone who is more willing to sell out to donors or special interests. And these were attacks that were frequently leveled against Kamala. This phenomenon was then repeated with a lot of Kamala Harris's other policies, 
leading to not really a complete collapse, but a slow drying of all of her votes as her voters began to be drawn to the more well-defined Warren or Buttigieg. This campaign nonetheless has one very strong favorable for Harris. It means that she's already prepared to debate, to engage in electoral politics, to interact with the media, as she had to do so in her own presidential run. It also means that many major attacks against her have already been leveled and are already familiar in the public eye, and while this could be considered a negative, it also prevents a complete collapse with new information that might sink the entire presidential ticket. One very important question to ask whenever talking about any political executive candidate is how well defined that candidate is. This is because you're always going to have to engage in a race between the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign to define and associate Kamala with whatever features and policies would be most beneficial to each campaign. We'll talk about how this executes later, but the key thing that's important to understand about how this works is that you have to rely on core launching off points that are based in reality. There are always various features about politicians, either negative or positive, that are inherently associated with them. The same is true for parties, movements, etc. With Biden, much of his resiliency to Trump's attacks comes from the fact that these preconceptions are extremely difficult to Trump to actually demonize. He's not able to be negatively characterized in the same way that Hillary Clinton was. So keeping that in mind, let's go and talk about some of those very launching points that could be used by a Trump campaign. The most frequent line of attack in the Democratic primary against Kamala Harris was her record as a prosecutor and eventually as Attorney General of California. She engaged in a very heavy-handed approach to the law, including prosecuting those for weed possession, prosecuting parents for their children not attending school or being late, and withholding evidence that would have cleared someone who was sentenced to the death penalty. These concerns were brought up in the Democratic primary and were very harmful among the younger crowd, particularly against those who view themselves as activists or further to the left. Harris also refused to prosecute several notable banking firms after the 2008 housing collapse for the fraud and false advertising that those firms engaged in. This leads to a somewhat justified narrative of corruption that has plagued the Harris campaign. One of Harris's selling points was actually that she is a strong fundraiser for the Democratic Party. However, what this means, particularly with her being from the state of California, is that she is very friendly with large corporations, including banks and including Silicon Valley, tech companies that are incredibly famous within the United States, including companies such as Facebook or Google. These donations, combined with her record of not prosecuting those banks, does show a clear connection to Democratic Party insiders and a clear connection to the financial interests that may not necessarily align with the interests of those Democratic voters or those Democratic activists. She's also failed to use antitrust against various big tech monopolies, which Silicon Valley is so famous for. Of course, there has recently been hearings on some of those major tech companies at the federal level. However, the important thing to note here is that the first line of defense against these monopolistic tendencies is to actually have state regulators go after them and to prevent some of those mergers from happening at all. Unfortunately for Biden and Harris, these connections, which would be illegal in many other developed countries, do show a long record of personal and political corruption with Kamala Harris. However, an important thing to note is that not all of these attacks will resonate, particularly when made by Donald Trump. Of course, Trump's record on these issues aren't necessarily clean either. While the president has tried to reform the federal prison system, his attacks on Black Lives Matter and on various protests, not just the violent ones, 
have led to a strong negative view on his approach to issues such as police or with race at large. When it comes to corruption, many of Trump's cabinet members and advisors were actually involved in the very same deals that Kamala Harris refused to prosecute, including Steve Mnuchin, who is actually the head of one of those banking firms at the time when Kamala Harris refused to prosecute. However, hypocrisy has never stopped Trump in the past. He engaged in these kamikaze-like attacks against Hillary Clinton. For example, he accused Clinton of helping to silence her husband's accusers, even while Trump had sexual assault allegations against him. He also attacked her over the Clinton Foundation, which was widely perceived as corrupt, even while the now-dissolved Trump Foundation was engaged in corrupt behavior itself. Ultimately though, the real downside to these attacks is that it doesn't fit in the pre-existing narratives that Trump already has. Harris isn't someone who is friendly with the activist or progressive side of the Democratic Party. Harris's record as a tough-on-crime prosecutor, while negative to the country as a whole, might actually help defend her against some accusations that she wants to quote-unquote defund the police, for example. In order to attack the Biden-Harris ticket on where it's most susceptible, Trump actually has to break from some of his pre-existing attack lines, which is something that is very difficult to do in a short time span. Before we continue with this discussion, we have to take a short segue to make a distinction between five different types of voters. The first two types are generally not important when it comes to making vice presidential decisions, voters who essentially always vote Republican and those who always vote Democrat. The next two, however, are usually critical when making this decision. Voters who will choose between voting Republican and not voting at all, and those who will choose between voting Democrat and not voting at all. Finally, the last type of voters are those who will switch between Democrat and Republican depending on the circumstances of the election, the so-called swing voters. With regards to the third type of voter, Harris's selection will likely have a negative effect, although one that's lesser than that of, say, Elizabeth Warren or Karen Bass, two other nominees who are perceived as farther to the left than Kamala. Nevertheless, many of her more extreme positions on cultural issues in particular may be much more negative and may be a tool for Trump to campaign on. However, with regards to the fourth type of voter, Harris might be the worst choice possible. We already talked about her prosecutory record, which is a very heavy negative for many Democratic activists and progressive voters. After an extremely contentious primary election, this pick is actually very negative. Harris, during the primary, was not only seen as opposing some of the further left elements, but as actively betraying them when she abandoned her Medicare for All proposal. The voting reflects this. A very small percentage of voters would actually vote for Harris among young voters, among young African Americans, and especially among Latino voters, all of which are groups that Biden is struggling with. On the other hand, Kamala Harris could be seen as someone who's actually doubling down on the Joe Biden strategy of winning well-educated progressive liberals those who believe in the quote-unquote moment argument, those who believe that it's something important in and of itself to have an African-American woman as vice president. However, polling also shows that those who believe this are actually disproportionately white. The priorities of African-Americans and other minorities tend to be based on more economic policies or policies in general as they are not actually benefiting from representation. However, even with all of that in mind, there's actually one part of Kamala Harris's identity that's probably the most damaging that media doesn't even talk about. That is the fact that she is from California. Of course, California is a state that overwhelmingly votes for the Democratic Party and has serious issues of corruption within its own state government and within its framework of leadership. 
It's often seen as one of the most corporate-friendly states, and all of these things play with Kamala Harris's record in order to open up even further attacks on corruption, ones that implicitly align with that trope of being from California. It also plays into the idea that she's a quote-unquote out-of-touch elite, someone who may be in a liberal echo chamber where she doesn't actually understand the struggling needs of ordinary Americans. The latter fact, however, is likely to be offset by the fact that she's running with Joe Biden, someone who is very capable of reflecting and empathizing with ordinary Americans, particularly those from Midwestern states who are key in deciding the presidential election. With all this talk about what attacks Trump could actually levy against the Biden-Harris ticket, what actually has come out of his campaign has been very disappointing. There has been very little substance with regards to his actual attacks, and most of them just repeat some of the same buzzwords that he typically uses in his messaging, not actually focusing on Harris's record or on any of those launching off points that we talked about before. He has tried to call her out for his support on the Medicare for All attacks, and this is bad on two folds. First of all, Medicare for All actually pulls well with the American public if further advertising isn't actually invested into campaigning against it. Second of all, even if they did invest this money, it would most likely be a dud, as Kamala Harris has since gone against that proposal. Trump has also tried to go after Harris for her support of various culturally left proposals, including her statements on some more controversial racial theories, as well as for abortion. While these attacks are more likely to land, once again it ignores those preconceptions that many have about Harris. It ignores those avenues that are very open that can actually resonate with what people already know about her. Finally, he's engaged in the typical Trumpian-style, almost childish attacks on Harris, using words such as nasty to describe her, and this is one area where he may actually be achieving a tactical victory over the Democratic Party. This is because the media has an incredibly childish obsession with Trump's childish attacks, to the extent that they're willing to dedicate coverage to it, which would otherwise be used to promote Kamala Harris. One important thing to note here is political media's idiocratic obsession with quote-unquote dog whistle politics. What their idea of a dog whistle essentially is, is a policy or a statement that appeals to some controversial value without actually saying it, something such as racism. The idea is that a dog whistle is usually something that's at a pitch where only dogs can hear it, and that most normal people would just not notice it whatsoever. The same is true for this supposed tactic. What happens here, however, is that it's generally a mass delusion, and it's something that's intentionally used by political opponents to drive media critics to an indefensible position. That's because when you argue with dog whistle politics, you're essentially assuming intent for something that can never be proven. This may seem a little bit complicated, but it's very obvious when you actually look at a case study. Let's take one of Trump's childish comments. He called Kamala Harris, quote-unquote, a nasty woman. Of course, media were quick to jump at this and say, oh, this is sexist, racist, etc. And if you just think back, say, four years, you use the same names for Ted Cruz. And while you could say, oh, Ted Cruz is a Latino American, it's fairly clear to almost all lay people that this is not a racially driven word. This is something that only appeals to people who already have a preconceived hatred, or at least a preconceived belief that Trump is racist. And this means that it's likely not going to resonate with anyone who isn't already voting solidly for the Democratic Party. It's also incredibly easy to get false positives out of this. Many Democratic politicians' quotes could also be taken out of context to imply something that's racist or to imply something that is otherwise untoward. This isn't necessarily because they are racist, but because the idea of dog whistle politics 
is so broad that it can be applied to anyone who's not carefully monitoring their own language. However, this creates a strong appearance of contradiction among Trump's political and media opponents. And because of that, there is an incredibly low acceptance of these types of narratives with regards to Trump. That's why approval of the president was not heavily shifted by those attacks as his term progressed. They only shifted after the mismanagement of coronavirus and after the use of the military and other federal forces in order to oppose protests on the basis of small instances of violence. This failure on both sides to message properly is actually very interesting, and it reminds me of a quote by a famous chess grandmaster, Mikhail Tal, who once said, You must take your opponent into a deep dark forest where 2 plus 2 equals 5, and the path leading out is only wide enough for 1. He was known for very complex, although dubious, attacking patterns in the game of chess, and this seems to be what's going on with regards to the Democratic and Republican campaigns. Essentially, the priority isn't necessarily to launch the most effective, consolidated attack, but instead to create general confusion for the opposing party, to create chaos and uncertainty in order to have some hope of winning the election. This was Trump's strategy in 2016, however, when there are such well-defined issues such as coronavirus or such as the George Floyd protests, this may not be something that ends in Trump's favor. The last important note for this vice presidential pick is probably actually the most interesting. That's because it signals a lot about Biden's priorities moving forward. You can think of four main priorities when it comes to having a vice presidential pick. First of all, this kind of obvious, winning the election. Now, Harris is certainly not the best pick for this. She's essentially in a bad spot where she's not left enough in order to appeal to some of those disaffected constituencies, such as young people, such as Latinos, but is not centrist enough to actually deflect those attacks from Trump. It would have been much more effective to choose Elizabeth Warren for the former goal and someone like Tammy Duckworth or Susan Rice for the latter. The second priority is governing, and once again, Kamala Harris is a miss here. The most demanding issues here are coronavirus, none of the candidates have particular expertise in, economic recovery, where Elizabeth Warren is the clear choice, and foreign policy, where Susan Rice is the clear choice. Unless Biden is planning a major judicial overhaul, it's likely that Kamala Harris's experience will not actually come into handy if she's serving as vice president. The third point is satisfying insiders, satisfying lobbyist groups, donors, or activist groups within the party. Now, this is split, as I talked about before. Harris is someone who does have a strong appeal to fundraisers, to donors, and to major corporate interests within the Democratic Party. However, she's also someone who is toxic to the Black Lives Matter crowd, as someone who was a tough-on-crime Democrat early on in her career. So while this factor may still be a positive for Harris, I don't think it's the reason why she was chosen. What may be most important to Joe Biden is directing the Democratic Party's future. Nearly every single vice presidential nominee of a winning president was then able to secure the party's nomination in the future, if they ran. This means that Harris would likely be the front-runner if Biden either did not seek the nomination after four years or after serving a full eight years. So what does this tell us about the direction of the Democratic Party? First of all, it means that they're not interested in anti-corruption or in reforming their approach to big tech. As I talked about before, those are the core stains on Harris's career. The second is something that actually serves to illustrate a broad point about the Democratic Party and about American politics as a whole. Democrats generally view internal threats as much more dire than external, 
They see Sanders as someone who is more likely to create a shift such that the incumbent Democratic forces would lose power, as opposed to simply losing to the Republican Party. The opposite is actually true for the Republicans. Almost all Republicans got in line after McCain, after Romney, and even after Trump, although to a slightly lesser degree than the other two. It shows that the Republicans are willing to coalesce regardless of what it means for their own party's future because they see winning the next election and preventing the Democratic Party from doing so as the core focus of their mission. The same is not true for Democratic insiders. Although there was significant campaigning on this issue by Joe Biden, some of the auxiliary forces around him don't hold the same beliefs. You can see this with some of the scheduling with regards to the Democratic National Convention and with regards to a lot of the post-Biden signaling that's gone out. The Democratic Party is probably the established political force that is one of the most emblematic of what I talk about when I talk about parties being risk-averse. The reason why Republicans were not as risk-averse when it comes to their party is because that they recognize that they need to allow change to happen in order to stand a chance at winning with their existing coalition. This seems to be something that either the Democrats don't recognize or simply isn't true. The population of the United States does actually tend to favor the Democratic Party. However, this refusal to use the vice presidential pick to expand to a broader coalition of the party does show a lot of that risk aversion that is so famous within the Democratic Party itself. However, because of the self-destruction of the Republican Party and of the Trump administration, there's likely not actually going to be a dramatic shift in these interests for the future. That means for those who are actually seeking change to the status quo, to those who are seeking broader ideological shifts, and in even simple things like opposing corruption, they're going to need incentive realignments. It means ending the politics of distraction, which I talk about a lot on this show, as something that is weaponized in order to misdirect people from the solutions that matter, and from issues that are often the most impactful, whether those be economic issues, whether those be healthcare, or anti-corruption. One crucial part of this, though, is the circumstances at hand. The Democratic Party is only willing to do this, is only willing to lock down the existing coalitions without appealing to more economic populists, because they have, essentially, a free pass. Although Trump isn't guaranteed to lose, the circumstances are certainly the worst for Republicans for decades. Once again, we have to look at the Democratic Party's complete inability to think ahead and recognize that this is exactly what gives the Republicans more chance to consolidate power in the future. Because they refuse to have more of a working class appeal, because they are making active choices in order to redirect the party towards that corporate class, towards the more corrupt status quo, and towards those who are tougher on crime, they're not going to have as broad of appeal in the future. And that means there is going to be some demographics that will shift, most likely those who are more working class and those who are Latino. Those are Biden's weaknesses, and they're weaknesses that are certainly not going to be covered by a Harris nomination in the future. However, for those of you who are Americans, or who are just interested in what direction America goes in the future, this is likely going to have a despotic or even chaotic effect on the governance of the United States, where those in that country are going to feel more disconnected from the government as ever, as it is likely that anti-corruption norms won't necessarily be put into place, even if Biden wins the nomination and doesn't necessarily break those customs at the same rate as Trump. Nonetheless, both parties will still have an infrastructure of corruption, and there will be a strong working class majority that is not represented by either party. 
Of course, for those of you who are listening to this show, you'll know that this means that the media is likely going to become even more toxic and even more partisan, that emotional calcification is going to rise within the public, and they're going to be more and more distracted from issues that would actually improve their daily lives. In the end, all this chaos is just going to be left suspended and unanswered until the nomination processes for 2024 plays out. However, that doesn't mean that there's not a lot that you can still do in order to oppose corruption, in order to oppose damaging media systems, and in order to promote more constructive solutions. One thing that's incredibly easy to do is just to share the podcast. Subscribe, like, comment, give me the most interaction that you can, and share with all your friends, post on social media, and just talk about some of these theories with people who you know who are interested in politics. As I said a few episodes ago, use the power that you already have. You have much more of it than you expect. Please continue to support the show, support journalism, and support honesty. Until next time.